Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. And what's up? Welcome in GC Live Tuesday episode, bi week edition of GC Live. I'm Wes Mitchell. He is Chris Clark. We're going to have a very special guest joining us here today in just a moment. Uh, first, I want to tell you about our presenting sponsor. It is Clint Hammond of the Mortgage Network. Give Clint a shout, 803-576-4450. He is the branch manager of the Columbia Mortgage Network and uh, obviously the presenting sponsor of our show each and every day. Check him out, clinthammond.com. But uh, we're going to waste no time. We're going to go out right now to our good friend. It is Clark Brooks. The SEC Stat Cat is how you know him on Twitter. Clark, um, I guess it's been about a year, man. We, we had you on last year uh, talking Mike Bobo offense. Um, now we've got you on talking a little Marcus Satterfield offense. Uh, but first, man, for, for maybe the folks out there who are not familiar with the site, not familiar with the Twitter, I, I know you uh, – uh, I guess you have a subscription option now on, on the site. You've gone to uh, the premium side of things. So um, I, I know that we had some people who were excited to have you on, but maybe we've got some new – viewers as well since last time so why don't you tell everybody a little bit of background about what your your website and and your uh, your information your content is all about man sure wes chris thank you again for having me essentially it's just a resource for the average fan to have a little bit of transparency for statistics beyond just what the box score says so the box score very rarely does it tell us any type of context where balls are thrown what plays people are um, calling, even like total numbers of targets. 
are not necessarily a readily available thing. So um, I know it just means more in the SEC. So I'm going a little bit above and beyond just the basic stuff and getting um, the nitty gritty stuff to the fans, whether you are just an avid gambler and you need um, some bit of information to influence which way of the side of the line you want to fall on or if you are just um, a, a pure diehard for your fan you want to know everything about the team what they run what um, type of concepts they'd like to lean on in certain situations or just looking at things of how your players can stand out above everyone else so for instance like stable metrics versus process metrics all of that can be found on the site Clark, uh, again, man, we do appreciate the time uh, you coming on. I, I know it's uh, it's always fun to dive into this stuff with you. Um, but before we get into the "what is wrong" question with, with South Carolina's offense, um, let's maybe get into just your your observations about m- maybe what this scheme is like from a concept standpoint. I think at least with Mike Bobo coming in last year, Gamecock fans kind of knew what to expect. It, you know, it was a Mike Bobo offense. They had a little bit of an idea of what that meant. Marcus Satterfield comes in, not necessarily a guy that comes in with his own identity or or scheme that, that fans knew, you know, what to expect. There was all this talk, um, you know, about Joe Brady influence, about Beamer's Oklahoma influence, and it was kind of like a grab bag of here or there. And uh, what now that we've, we've got eight games, and I know you break down uh, the games very thoroughly, what stands out about conceptually what this offense actually is? Yeah, you you definitely hit on it. So I had the exact same inclination heading into this year. What exactly is this offense going to be? Are they going to try and borrow some stuff from 2019 LSU? Are they going to try and borrow some Oklahoma Lincoln Riley air raid stuff? Are they going to try and just do more pro based stuff? So um, it actually has been a pretty decent grab bag of things. I have seen the levels bench play that LSU really likes. I've seen the duo dive from bunch sets that LSU really likes. I've seen mesh daggers that... Uh, uh, Oklahoma really likes. I've seen a lot of things that um, uh, the Panthers have run. Um, but basically, it's just kind of watered down because of the lackluster line play. They can't have a whole lot of things that like to marinate, take a long time to develop. So that's basically divulged into a quick passing game. And I've actually drawn up for the people live streaming right behind me. It is the favorite pass pattern, spacing and curl flat patterns. So spacing and curl flat patterns are basically um, the poster child for conservative pass plays. I mean, when your deepest route is only like a 12-yard curl, it's not exactly trying to stretch the field vertically. However, it really wants to stretch the field horizontally. So that's picking on linebackers, drop spots of zones, and finding a quick outlet here or there. So... um, After this past weekend in SEC play, it is by far the most featured pass pattern at 24 targets. The next closest concept group are true screens at 14. So 10 more than the next closest thing. So that is just um, highlighting the limitations that they have, no only up front letting the the plays develop for more, let's just say, less... Um, aggressive downfield pass patterns. Sure, you do see that, but it's a lot more watered down just because you don't have the time to let it develop and in how you have to get the ball out with those screens. Um, so last weekend, and we saw like 10 of them against Texas A&M. Of course, a lot of them were run late when the game was already decided. But look, this is a consistent effort because we don't trust the quarterbacks to throw downfield. We don't trust our line to give us that time. And our receivers aren't necessarily the best man beaters, so we can't necessarily run a lot of man beating horizontal things like slants and meshes um, at, a lot, at a large frequency. So the run game, um, it is basically a lot like I was 
highlighting or hinting at with that 2019 LSU team. So that LSU team, uh, one of the highlighting factors that that run game did was basically streamline everything into two run looks. Um, and that is inside zone um, read, basically a, a B-gap type of play, and then a duo dive, same side, north-south type of thing going to the same side B-gap. So what that was, it was just a way of, okay, depending on how the front is, we like our guys, we like our abilities just to go out and execute. And unfortunately, looking at LSU or looking at the Gamecocks this year, they have they have just not been able to go out and execute, even though there have been, you know, pre-snap examples where like, oh, look, this is the right call. We have the right spacing. That gap is unoccupied. We have uh, enough might at the point of attack, but they just cannot get anything going. So tying into that, like I said, inside zone reads in SEC play, it's about um, 16% of their offense. Duo dives about 6% of their offense. So put them together, that's a fifth of the offense right there. And then when you throw on curl flat patterns, there's another 10%. So that's essentially a quarter of the offense are those three plays. Um, and of course, with neither of them really being great uh, methodologies for uh, unlocking explosive gains, that's led to a lot of um, small ball, um, long drives, trying to win in the moment. And of course, once they move backwards, which... As of today, in SEC play, when you take out garbage time, 10.7% of um, South Carolina's plays result in a loss. Only Ole Miss currently has a higher clip in the conference. So um, it's not really giving itself a lot of margin of error. And, of course, they are handcuffed just because of the, the limitations they have at personnel right now. Clark, you, you used uh, my, my favorite phrase, which was margin of error. We've talked about all season now they have a low margin of error. So yeah. you pointed out rightly, Ole, Ole Miss has the, the lowest or the, the next highest you know, uh, negative plays margin, but I would assume Ole Miss a lot more potential to overcome that by creating explosive plays. Like, do you have kind of a metric for South Carolina's ability to overcome with explosive plays versus Ole Miss? I mean, yeah, we can look at stuff like behind the chains. So, like, how can you erase those plays from happening? Ole Miss consistently does uh, bail itself out of jams, whether it is second and three, first and 20. You know, they can uh, they can run any type of concept and any type of down. Even when it's like third and 18, they can rip off a counter for 30 yards and not think, that, think anything of it. Um, again, they just have a lot more leeway that regards. And, again, when South Carolina is put behind the chains and obvious passing downs, it's not like, Doty or Zeb Norlin have the arm talent to consistently thread tight windows, push the ball downfield, and at the same side, they don't exactly have wide receivers that can manufacture separation like Don Terrio Drum and Jonathan Mingo when he's healthy or um, any of those speedsters that they have down there in Oxford. So, Clark, um, let, let, let's go back to kind of um, maybe comparing what Bobo was doing last year in the run game um, compared to what you were just telling us about South Carolina's running game this year. Um, how much of South Carolina's success last year um, was coming, you believe, from that, like, a schematic advantage or just maybe a being a better fit for what they have uh, with the skill set of the offensive line? I mean, that, that's sort of what I'm getting to here, and I'll let you take it whatever direction you want, man, but what I'm getting to is that a big question and a big just talking point in the fan base right now has been this kind of idea of four of the five offensive linemen from last year are, are back. Um, the running backs are back. And people see 1,000-yard rusher last year, and then they see uh, really 
a not very many explosive plays from the running game this year and just not really um, much consistent success. Now, the running game last year was propped up at times by some really big games against certain teams, and then there were some really lackluster games. Like A&M, they didn't run the ball against them last year either. But um, by my eye, uh, you know, the, the big plays have not been coming this year when they did come at, at times last year. So how, how do you sort of uh, answer or, or what is your what are your thoughts on that kind of question that has permeated game cognition? It's just been how how has it been this different with relatively similar personnel? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a big shift in um, philosophy. So Mike Bobo, even though he did like the I formation, some inside zone blasts, you know, lead block blasts from that formation, toss leads from that. Sure, sure, there are less over year over year. But the thing that I'm noticing is just less runs in general directed towards the perimeter. So Mike Bobo and L- Mike Bobo South Carolina offense and uh, Steve Sarkeesian's Alabama offense. They were the only two SEC offenses last year where power runs had the majority share compared to zones. So um, that has shifted year over year. Now, I mentioned duo dive. Sure, they are still healthy, but things like buck sweep, pin pull, things directed outside the bookends, trying to get two lead blockers and manufacture big bodies on slow bo- or big bodies on small bodies on the perimeter are just not being explored. So, yeah, you mentioned they did have some games where they popped off. Um, they were very volatile last year. Um, sure, they had a very similar negative play rate, very similar um, uh, run havoc rate, but the thing that they kind of counterbalanced that with was getting those splash gains. I think in SEC pl- in standard time, they had the number one rush yards before contact average. I think they did um, in all time, including all snaps. So again, when you're so good at one thing and so bad at the other, you just have to look at how the methodology, is, methodology has changed. And even though, yeah, like you said, Four out of five guys are back, but they're just not really wanting to explore that aspect outside the bookend. So what are they doing this year? They're doing more condensed bunch sets. Try and get the defense to either um, come too close inside so they can be reached outside with like an outside zone. That's been the more perimeter-oriented thing. But again, as we've seen, it's not necessarily worked as well as last year. So um, coming into this week, 1.65 rush yards before contact. In standard time against SEC defenses, that's almost cut in half year over year. That matters. And when you're looking at your lead back, who had a 1,000-yard effort last year, I just looked down and noticed his rush yard before contact at 0.83 per attempt. My God, he's essentially getting an inch beyond the line of scrimmage and getting hit on average. That is the second lowest in the conference. And because of that, his um, his stuff rate, so percentage of runs that gain three yards or less at 39.4 is the third lowest. And of course, if he's hit early and often and he's not necessarily running to green grass all that often, his overall um, explosive run rate, which is one of the things that really got a lot of people um, on Kevin Harris's uh, backing last year, it's at 9.1%, fifth lowest in the SEC entering um, this point in the season. So that is in itself cannot be ignored. Sure, the change in philosophy, there was going to be some growing pains, but you would just have liked to think they would have played a little bit more to these linemen's strengths, perhaps getting them moving in space a little bit more towards the perimeter like I hinted on with the buck sweeps and the pinpoint action because if you look at the statistics, sure, they weren't necessarily wowing, but compared to what they were uh, or compared to what the output is this year, it's definitely preferable. 
Well, and that's where I was going to get you to go next, Clark. And, and this may be putting you a little bit more in the opinion realm or like putting your coaching like OC hat on. But when you watch this team this year and you break down what they're doing, you know, are you seeing a little bit more of a failure of execution, which that's, that's pretty obvious watching some of it is that there's sometimes failures in execution. Are you seeing more of that? Or are you going a little bit more towards, Hey, given what we saw last year, why are they not running more pin and pull buck sweep? Because I remember one game this year, they pulled out the pin and pull, I think for the first time all year, and they ran it twice in a game and averaged eight yards a carry. I think they had like 11 yards and seven, something like that, whatever the average of eight comes out to. And then that was it. That's all they ran it. I think it was the Kentucky game. So what do you see? Is it more of a failure of execution? Is it more of run more of this that plays to the player's strength? Or is it, is it you know, some of both of those things? Those things. I mean, like, I just looked at what they have been running in SEC play. You're right. Um, four of the buck sweeps of all – or the pin pull buck sweeps, outside power reads in our um, categorization, um, 66% success rate on the buck sweep, averaging 6.3 yards per carry. So, again – it seems on that very, very small sample that this team is still capable of winning that way. But um, I don't know why, um, stylistically, um, Satterfield has just not been willing to explore that type of thing. But, I mean, a good example would be to look at what LSU has done over the last three weeks, right? We know that their run game has been um, stifled. It's been lackluster. It's been muted. Um, uh, issues up front with the offensive line. So what did they do? They started to lean into concepts that they haven't been running. And before this last weekend, that went gangbusters. Like, they're, they brought themselves off of the conference floor and, like, rush yards before contact, explosive run rate, rushing success rate into the middle of the pack just because they featured more tackle counter um gap schemes so it was just a matter of all right we're we know what we want to do we know our personnel limitations our mentality our philosophy what we want to do is just not aligning it's not working we just got to figure out stuff now and again if it's going to be a long-term play if you know that outside pin pull stuff getting your lineman moving towards the perimeter is something that you just don't necessarily want to do long term yeah i can get um just in terms of opportunity cost we don't want to spend a whole lot of time um wasting time on it especially if it looks like, you know, the season is not necessarily going to get too much more momentum moving forward in that aspect. So why put more stuff on tape as opposed to just hammer hone on the things that you know long-term are going to be um, featured with this offense. But yeah, I get the fan frustration. I get there. Look, every team, every week, I wonder why don't they do this more often? Why do they, uh, you know, avoid stuff? And I mean, look, they know their personnel more than we do. They know what's going on behind the scenes. They could be practicing this stuff and just not necessarily getting it done. And since they can't get it done in practice, they just don't feel like they have a whole lot of trust in it. Vice versa, they know things that are a little bit more, I would say, basic, like inside zone read and north-south duo die. Those are like day one install plays that they can um, just have a little bit more solace in at this point in time. But yeah. I have wondered why they have kind of faded some of the things that they did last year that worked, even though I wouldn't necessarily throw out South Carolina's um, overall product last year as one of my favorites. There were effective tactics that they are, for whatever reason, just not wanting to explore. Again, we're joined by Clark Brooks, a.k.a. SEC Stat Cat. Clark, um, let, let's talk quarterbacks for a second, man. I, I mean, um, it's been a, a situation here where obviously – uh, they start out with Zeb Nolan. There's the injury to Luke Doty. Then Luke Doty gets inserted. Uh, the injury sort of flares up again. Now he's out. Uh, we, we got our first look at Jason Brown sort of in garbage time on Saturday. Um, let, let, let's talk about Doty, man. I, I mean, he's still 
I would say very, very young in his development. This is not a kid that even played a ton uh, in, in high school. He got injured his senior year, played some receiver before that. Um, what, what are some areas with Luke Doty uh, that, that maybe you liked? And, and what are some areas that, that maybe uh, you think should be uh, things he should be focused on moving forward as uh, you know he goes into this offseason and, and starts to try to get healthy again? Sure. I mean, we'll start with the positives. Love his mobility. Love his gumption. Love his tenacity. He doesn't really go down without a fight. He likes to extend plays. He likes to use his legs to um, negate pass rushes on occasion. And he's fairly um, accurate in those situations. I mean, relatively average, or relatively accurate, I should say. Um, But the thing is with him, when you're trying to strip it all down and just look what you are not doing, he's just not completing enough deep passes right now. So looking at his uh, vertical pass chart, I have both of their pass charts, Zeb's and Luke's, side by side right now. Um, He's only 7 of 20 on deep balls, um, and two of them were created catches. So those are instances of his receiver basically winning a contested ball or hauling in a catch that the average receiver should not be expected to make every single time. So yeah, that's a shortcoming. And again, like I mentioned earlier with the conservative pass patterns, teams playing single high coverage, really trying to um, make it tough with that extra body in the box to run the ball. If you cannot take advantage downfield, it's a big shortcoming for the scheme. So, um, but again, when you're stripping all that away and you're just looking at what type of passer he is without play action, um, uh, from a clean pocket on dropback passes, so not screens or RPOs, and you know he's not buying time or anything like that. Um, he has the second worst depth adjusted accuracy because of that shortcoming throwing the ball downfield, despite an average success rate. So down to down success rate. Now that that might be a statistic the average person might not know. Same with depth adjusted accuracy percentage. So I guess I should probably explain that a little bit. So depth adjusted accuracy percentage takes the static accuracy percentage, which is like completion percentage. Was it caught? Yes, no. Was it accurate? Yes, no. And it applies weight the further a pass travels downfield. So if you're really good at throwing downfield, being precise downfield, you will come out smelling like a rose. If you are not, you will be hurt by this metric. And like I said, only 7 of 20 downfield with two created passes or two complete, two created completions, second worst depth adjusted accuracy, but down to down, he's fine because he can read defenses and structure. He knows what the offense is trying to do, get the ball out of his hands in a timely fashion. Sure, that doesn't always work out. We have seen um, plenty of plays break down just because of lackluster protection up front or um, no one getting the necessary necessary, um, separation downfield, but compared to Mr. Noland, he is unequivocally the better option at this point in time. Um, even though both are bottom three in interceptable pass rate and this floor criteria is what I say. It's like the passing floor, bare minimum. We're going to throw a guy in the backfield. What can he give us on any given pass attempt? That's what we're trying to um, examine when you're trying to eliminate play actions that can tilt defenses or you know create more separation downfield it's scheme driven as opposed to what a quarterback is actually able to do with his throwing talent so both are bottom three in interceptable pass rate but actually both are top four in explosive pass rate so they do look to push the ball downfield when there is a uh, prudent moment but it's just the fact that nolan has the worst accuracy percentage the worst success rate and um as we've seen down to down he's just not a reliable passer 
He's like 40 years old at this point. You know, long-term, if he's not going to be a short-term stopgap starter, get us a win this week. There's no reason to give him more playing time when you're, when you guys kind of hinted on this. We're trying to find out, okay, is Dodie a guy we can like uh, uh, mold around, um, invest in, or do we need to like, yeah, give Mr. Brown more playing time or get back on the recruiting trail for hopefully a better option at quarterback because you need to know what he is moving forward because the quarterback is the most important position. I don't want to keep bringing up LSU, but the fact that they've had volatility with their quarterback position and not being able to manage the environment, it basically cost their coach their job, barring all the superfluous stuff going around Mr. Odron. But um, yeah, Doty, he is the better option. His accuracy percentage is still kind of middling, but by far, he is the more safe option compared to Mr. Nolan. He is a preferable turnover-worthy play rate. He's more explosive. He's more successful down-to-down. And he has faced more pressure on average because of uh, just because playing against the harder opponents. I think uh, that has a little, bit, a little bit of an aspect to do with it, of course. Doty, or, uh, Doty did not have that benefit of playing the um, first two weeks, which were the easier games on the slate, as we know. So that was a way for Nolan to kind of pad the numbers a little bit. But still, after all of that, Doty still looks to be the better passer despite having um, the higher degree of difficulty. So let's talk about Jason Brown a little bit. You mentioned him. Um, Good chance we may be seeing more of him, Clark, because uh, Luke Doty out for the season, Zeb Nolan having a meniscus procedure uh, this week. Uh, the staff in their release, the university's release, says that he'll be available for Florida. Obviously, meniscus surgery. We'll see. We may see more Jason Brown. We saw his most extensive action against AM. I think it's really interesting that when you go through and when you log your uh, stats that you account for garbage time, right? So uh, Jason Brown obviously saw some garbage time snaps against AM. He did some good things during that time. Give us your assessment of how he performed against Texas A&M. Like, again, they ran this seven times in the fourth quarter, the Kroll Flats pattern. It's not a play that you demand a lot of talent from the quarterback positions. Like, look, dude, if it's single high, we're going to take a curl on the outside. If it's too deep, one of the inside guys to maybe find a little hole on the perimeter. If it's man, maybe one of like sometimes they'll line up the, uh, the running backs and one of the slot, the flat attacking things. Maybe you'll be lined up with a linebacker, win one-on-one. There's your read. It's a quick thing. You're not going to be in the pocket too long. It's very pre-snap determined type of thing, hot potato type of thing. So he wasn't really asked to do a whole lot. He had one deep pass attempt towards the middle of the field, which was overthrown. It was not open by any means. Um, but just having that on tape, I can tell you, it looks like his arm talent in terms of just driving the ball downfield might be better than Dolly's and Nolan's at this point in time. But it's just a question of accuracy, my man. How can you, uh, you know, can you do that consistently enough on attempts 10 yards downfield? Any quarterback can go out and go complete like an eight-yard curl route or a two-yard route to the flat. That's not telling me anything. And unfortunately, just because it was garbage time, they were just trying to get out of it. It was a very watered-down script for him. But look, he did go out and execute. Those looks had like a 50% success rate or the, uh, the team had like a 50% success rate. I'm going off the top of my head, so I do apologize. In the fourth quarter, so that wasn't necessarily a complete wash, uh, especially considering entering that final stanza, they only had one 
first down from scrimmage and three wild snaps. Not the best ratio to um, reflect offensive efficiency. So moving forward, I'm just curious just to see if his arm talent will um, uh, result in a little bit more verticality, um, a little bit more um, things like Portland Yankee shots, which is a thing this offense does do on occasion. Um, it's generally like a two-man route combo consisting of a deep dig and a deep overtop post. We just saw he has um, pre prerequisite arm strength to drive the ball towards the deep middle of the field to take advantage of a collapsing safety short, should that um, opportunity arise and not necessarily uh, result in a contested attempt, an off-target attempt, as opposed to a catch-and-run type of scenario. So you got to like that upside, but I'm still very, very hesitant considering what they asked him to do um, and his, you know, his, his precision is just not necessarily great in the small sample size that I got to see him in. So uh, something you said earlier, Clark, caught my attention. You said, um, I believe, that Bobo's stuff wasn't your favorite um, scheme, maybe your favorite approach. So, I, And I know everybody has different personnel, and it's a lot of it's going to be personnel dependent. But I, I am curious, man, if, if you – if you were drawing up or, or if you were hiring an offense coordinator or you were putting together an offense for yourself um, in, in the SEC, we'll keep it there. Um, what, what, what is your favorite? Like what, what do you can, you probably see uh, other than coaches who are breaking down film every week, you probably have a more complete view of what every team in this league is doing uh, than about anybody, certainly from the media side of things. So what concepts, what approach, um, do you think in general is most successful right now uh, just based on what you see around the league? Talent always helps the scheme, and I just don't want to say, yeah, just do whatever Ole Miss and Alabama are doing. Go yeah. copy LSU's 2019 offense. A lot of people tried that. hasn't really worked out. Um, I just like to think of things that I generally like I like picking on linebackers. I like high-low concepts towards the middle of the field. I don't like necessarily like lean on RPOs too much. I don't like leaning on passes outside the numbers exclusively. So um, that's what Mike Bobo is trying to get Bo Nix to stop doing. So Bo Nix has been a passer who has leaned a lot on RPOs, leaned on back shoulders, and just stuffed one-on-one balls outside the numbers. Sure, you need to be able to play that way on occasion, but it's not a thing that I like to set myself to, up to do. So like I said, I like things towards the middle of the field, high lows, like shallow concepts, um, the dagger concepts, double post concepts, um, levels concepts. So yeah, sh some of the more, and cross, some of the most effective pass patterns, most effective offenses in this conference use those on occasions, and some of the bad ones still use them as well. So it's just a thing of philosophy. I like to pick on linebackers with speed, whether it is a shallow cross with a speedy back or getting them to bite up and throwing a dig into a vacated por uh, portion of like a cover two zone or attacking the seams against cover three. I'm very big on just pressing linebackers in different ways, whether it is putting them out of sorts, trying to rally towards the line of scrimmage and tackle, or um, make them cover downfield, carry the number three receiver vertically like a bad example right because obviously he won the Heisman he's a talented cat and nothing against tough Borland but he's a slow-footed middle linebacker and when you have to have a slow-footed middle linebacker carry Devontae Smith in the national championship game 
Um, I like to see that from a schematic standpoint because normally the old the old um, school of thought was, okay, our tight end, he's always going to be our number three receiver. So speaking of number three, if you have a, a, a three-sided receiver, one outside, two middle guy, three on the innermost, usually those are tight ends or running backs depending on the formation. But when you're able to put in speedy guys against those linebackers, it really does accentuate the already advantage that some of these patterns have. So yeah, there are certainly things that I really do like. I really do like things that Ole Miss has been doing from empty personnel. So empty personnel, you should just read, okay, they're just going to try and be pass-happy offense. Well, then they started to do um, offset tight end type of thing. So it would still be um, empty, but you would have an offset tight end where you could still run quarterback power. You could run quarterback split zone stuff. And you're seeing Arkansas do this with K.J. Jefferson. And you're seeing kind of jet motions across the formation with a wide receiver or a running back where you can still do that power read, that inverted power veer look, but you can still do a pre-snap thing where it's, oh, crap, they're trying to stretch a sideline to sideline because they have five wide receivers. So it's just a mattering of putting in linebackers into um, precarious spots because how you use personnel, that's there's nothing new with that. A lot of these plays are old they're just window dressed and and you know uh uh run in a new modern type of way so um in my opinion linebackers are the weak spot for that type of thing on the defense because they don't have the brawn the might the girth as a defensive lineman nor do they have the speed of a defensive back so they're kind of you know tweener players and sure there's value for tweener players there's value for run stoppers but um, as we've seen with the rise in, um, this is say, usage of nickelbacks, 4-2-5s, 3-3-5 type of defenses where we're having less linebackers on the field and an extra defensive back. Um, there's a reason because of that, and it's because they're beat by these types of pass patterns like I've been talking about. So there's not any one particular philosophy that someone's running right now, and I would just run it verbatim. But without question, there are plenty of offenses that love these um, middle high lows that are all about stressing linebackers, making linebackers both having to come up and defend a run, fake them with play action, maybe get them out in space with an occasional RPO or screen, as well as um, defending downfield pass patterns like seams, daggers, uh, and cross. All right, so you mentioned screens earlier. You were discussing kind of the the percentage, the, the shares of, of offensive plays. The, the concept you had drawn up on your whiteboard there, I think it was 24%. You mentioned screens taking about 10 or 11%. Um, I want to know a little bit more about how you log screens. So what do you count as a screen when you're looking at a game? And specifically, running back screens for South Carolina have been, I mean, very few and far in between in terms of what's worked. Usually they've gone backwards. I think they had a pick on one that – bounced off a of running back shoulder pads, has not been successful at all. It even came up during the broadcast of the A&M game. So talk to us a little bit more about what you've seen in South Carolina's screen game and kind of how you log those. Um, so screens are a little bit different from RPOs. So there are outlet screens on RPOs, so like bubble screens, tunnel screens. Um, you'll see those um, quite often across the conference in addition, in addition to, you know, the glance post, the slants we'll see. But generally, you can tell when there is a designed true screen going on. You'll see the uh, a portion of the offensive line leak out, or you know, invite a pass rush to get them out of position and just throw the areas they vacate, and there you go. So um, obviously, there are play action true screens as well, and it just takes a little bit of a um, a trained eye to catch those out. They can a lot of them 
can look um, like play action tunnel screens when actually they are just a true inside zone RPO tunnel screen. So um, it wasn't so much of a percentage of plays uh, as opposed to total volume of reps in SEC play. So 14 have been called by this offense in SEC play. That's about 5% of um, this offense. So they've done some middle screens, some pick screens, 0 for 4 on slip screens in SEC play. That really stood out. Only two of the 14 have worked. That's just bad. Um, so, uh, in general, just yeah, we we kind of hinted on this earlier with getting asking your linemen to play a little bit more in space, and you would have liked to have thought or like to have, uh, think that this was a capable offense of doing that. Well, last year this wasn't exactly a strong screen a screen team either. So. Um, it's just a matter of, okay, shoot, we can't pass the ball downfield. We know they're going to be sending a heavy pass rush, so we might as well just lean into it a little bit. And again, when the returns aren't coming and you don't necessarily have the personnel or you don't feel like you have the personnel to take care of that consistently. So yeah, they only called one. I just, I just refreshed my numbers so I could have it for you. They only called one screen outside of SEC play. So, again, <laughs> when they're playing their harder opponents, this is going to be an aspect that they're trying to do just because their hands are tied in so many different areas. So, overall, on the season, 15 have been called. That's about 2.9% play share, but in SEC, that basically doubles to about 5%. Um, and it's just completely lackluster returns because um, they don't have the guys to make guys miss consistently or have the guys to have the wherewithal, the awareness to completely um, momentarily stop the pass rush and leak out in towards the perimeter and find a new head to get a hat on. Final question I got for you here, Clark. Um, uh, let's talk these final four weeks. What um, is there any, I hate to say it like this, but is there any hope for Gamecock fans that they, they might see a, a little bit more efficient offense down the stretch. Um, they go into this bye week, I, I guess. Um, I, I'll, I'll kind of ask the way I did earlier as well. If, if if you had some, if they were like, "Hey, man, we need you to come in and consult on, on this offense." Um, what are some changes you feel like South Carolina maybe could implement, or is some of this? I, I mean, I think always the question ends up: How, how much is it just? you got to continue to add better players and guys that can make people miss and guys that can pass pro and, and stuff like that. How, how much of it is a, is a problem that can be fixed in a shorter period of time versus just um, a long fix where you, you've got to, I don't know, find, find some answers and find players. I think there are some things that they can do moving forward. You know, I don't want to, I don't mean to crap on this lovely, lovely curl flats pass pattern because, you know, entering this week, it has a 50% success rate. It is their best play. Look, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it has gained the third most yardage of any concept group with 201. That's about 7.7% of the yards, 6.3 yards per attempt. Only the vertical um, divide or one-on-one deep balls average more yards per attempt and obviously that makes should make sense because of the very nature of the place but the thing with me is we know the run game has been lackluster it doesn't look like there's gonna be a whole lot of opportunities to run the ball moving forward so why not lean into the early down passing a little bit more now we know Oklahoma is an air raid team but they're still very very healthy in early down running they're very very healthy in uh, gap schemes and movement and having a different type of window dressing type of thing to manufacture some things downfield. But at the same time, they still feature mesh. They still feature dagger on early downs. I would lean into those type of things more on early downs. So 
early on in the season, I wrote about it, and it's just a thing that I liked. That's just a pattern I uh, generally do enjoy. So mesh for people who are uninformed or just don't know what I'm talking about. It's basically a concept with two intersecting shallow crosses. Um, obviously, if you're behind the chains, like third and 13, you can run them with a little bit more depth downfield. But they're generally about three yards downfield, two intersecting um, drag routes. And what you do with the other complementary routes uh, basically – uh, categorizes what type of mesh is it. Does it have a sit hook with a running back wheel? Then it's the Kelly mesh. Does it have a deep dig and a um, a seam? Well, that's the Lincoln-Riley dagger play that they really do like to run on third down from empty. Things that this offense was doing on early on in the year, but again, the, as the trust uh, from the offensive line waned, so did usage on that concept. But again, don't set yourself up to play third down. If you're going to think it works on third down, on third and six. Why not call it on first and 10? Again, it's a very low floor type of play with two shallow crosses at three yards. Even if you just complete one, you can lean into what Mike Leach does. He runs mesh more than anybody else in the country. He's fine getting three to four yards on first down, getting second and six, and managing the downs that way into a more methodical type of offense because explosive gains have been something the air raid has struggled with since moving to the SEC. So it's just a matter of setting yourself up for more advantageous opportunities you know your line is not blocking well. Again, 1.7 yards before contact in standard time against SEC play. It's even worse on first downs when you're an obvious run type of um, situation. So don't lean yourself into failure. Don't make Jason Brown's job harder. Now, this might be counterintuitive. The old way of thinking is, oh, we, want, we need a healthy run game to take pressure off your quarterback. Sure, but if your run game sucks and you're consistently playing third and eight, you're not doing your quarterback at any bit of favors whatsoever compared to if it was, you know, second and six, second and five, and going on that way. Because if it's a shorter distance to gain, then you can get your play action involved when your run game doesn't necessarily have to be overly effective. You can get, a, um, you know, a, an aggressive safety collapsing down and just throwing over top, like I mentioned, with one of those Portland Yankee plays with the deep dig over top post, which has been this offense's go-to um let's just say designed deep passing concept outside of just, you know, one-on-one -on -one verticals, or if it is that divide concept, some people call that 989 or middle reads or double goes, but essentially that's just um, max protection, seven guys protecting, outside guys are running vertical and your slot is reading your, your two safeties. If it's too deep, he's trying to split them. If it's one deep, he's running an occupier, trying to get that uh, middle of the field safety's attention so you can get those one-on-one -on -one opportunities on the outside. And again, those have gained the most yards out of anything um, through the air, but it's not necessarily a efficient look. You're relying on uh, passers without awesome arm talent to drive it downfield and wide receivers who are not necessarily um, built to win contested balls, to win consistently. And again, I would just lean into more things that we know works, like stick, shock, maybe not so much for this offense. I would fade that more on early downs as to more horizontal reads, some mesh, dagger, and uh, things of that sort. Clark, uh, great stuff as always, man. We, we appreciate the time. Uh, we'll let you get out of here and get back to it. Uh, before you go, though, tell everybody again how they can find you and uh, – Tell them, uh, yeah, they, they should sign up, man. Great information on there. And uh, honestly, some a lot of people like to say, oh, you, can, you can't find this information anywhere else about whatever product they're selling. I literally believe that to be true about SEC StatCat. You cannot find the depth of information about SEC offenses um, anywhere else on the web. So go check out SEC StatCat. Clark, tell them a little bit about it, man. 
Um, I try and live chart at least one game every Saturday, and it's usually the nooner game. Sometimes I do two, but you can follow all this stuff as I chart it. I'm not ripping stats from R or from like a, some type of data-rich type of database from box scores. I'm literally going in and watching every snap. So um, I'm not only confirming what you can see in the box score, I'm um, accentuating the box score. Again, you can't find how accurate a guy is, how far he's throwing downfield on average, um, being able to look at his pass chart at the end of the day. So as I chart every game, I make that readily available on the Twitter account. That's at SEC underscore StatCat. And of course, if you aren't patient and if you just want to see your own team, you can just go directly to the source on the site, you can see it all broken up by the passer charts, the run charts, the passer, uh, the catcher charts, um, as well as leaderboards and all these advanced statistics with crazy filters um, where you can do, you know, against SEC opponents only, only first downs, all these different parameters that you could basically think of. And if you wanted to, you know, isolate how a certain player is doing in a certain condition, you have the capabilities to do so. So that is secstatcat.com. Well, I've, it just jogged a, a question in my brain. Sure. Are you, are you having to do that um, with TV copy? Basically, yeah. Um, uh, it, just because it takes a little bit longer to wait for all 22 or the coaches film. And with very small circumstance or very small exceptions do i just have no idea what a play is what, what is going on in a play without the broadcast angle and of course sometimes espn they share the sky cam view the, yeah, the mad yeah. view and that's very helpful um diagnosing plays as well but yeah over the last four years less than a percent of plays have been diagnosed as unknown um and some of those have just been broadcast things where it's just Basically cut out. We don't know what the hell happened because the technical director just didn't feel like coming back from break soon, soon enough. Um, so I'm, I take a lot of pride in that, not being able to lean on all 22 and being able to turn this around relatively quickly. Sure, we, we all want our nitty-gritty stats as soon as the game is over, but sometimes it just takes a few days to get everyone done, especially when you have 14 teams. But, um, yeah, that's the thing where if I, can, if I can't help it and I, if I – have to search out all 22 i will but th those instances are very very small again less than a basically one and a half percent of plays are marked as unknown across the entire conference that's like twelve thousand snaps a fall so i like to think I, I i do pretty well just being able to diagnose what's going on from what the average fan can see from their couch awesome man we, we had one question for you here from chris on facebook uh is uh is SEC StatCat a membership site? What are the uh, the monthly dues to to sign up? Um, so it's kind of freemium based. You can get um, ten free page views, without an account, without anything before you're prompted to keep going. Mm. Um, so if you just wanted to do like ten more views, you just wanted to look up one thing little quick, real quickly, you can pay ninety nine cents and get ten more views and keep going that way, or you can get unlimited. Uh, unrestricted access for $4.99 a month. Awesome. Great deal there, man. Everybody go check it out. Um, promise you you're not going to find more information anywhere else on the web. Clark, we appreciate you, man. Let's do it again, okay? Absolutely. You guys have a good one. Yep, have a good one. That's Clark Brooks, SEC StatCat. Uh, great stuff from him, as always. Um, breaking down the Gamecocks offense. And, Chris, uh, as you can see, we have been flipped. We so. have been switched. Yes. Oh, hold on. Yeah, I gotta fix this video real quick. Y'all, y'all hang tight. Ta-da, we're back. Order, uh, order has been restored. Yeah, I knew that was gonna happen, but 
that that interview brought to you by our good friends at Primal Gourmet on our Primal Gourmet chat and guest line, I guess we're calling it. Um uh, primalgourmetsc.com. Chris, what what is your biggest takeaway uh from from what uh, from what he had to say? I would encourage those of you if you missed the beginning of the interview, go back, start it from the beginning. Um you may have to listen again cuz that was a lot of information jammed into an interview um and, and i mean this really in the most uh respectful way possible because it's a compliment his brain processes things faster than than i can process exactly what he's saying sometimes like um he he really is like i don't say this lightly like he is brilliant with this stuff as far as picking it up and then relaying it um you know to everybody else so very impressive. You may actually have to go back and listen to some of the answers to get a full view of everything that he said. But I, dude, that that site, awesome resource. I'm I'm glad I found it a couple of years ago because um, you can really find about anything on there. Yeah, you can. And and you know the thing is, in addition to his brain processing it so fast, is the concepts that he's talking about. A lot of times you have to go. Okay, you know, you're trying to figure out. He starts talking about daggers and mesh and things like that especially if you're unfamiliar, you're going to have to go back and look at those things. Even if you have some familiarity, you know, you're trying to run through it real quick, but it's awesome insight. And Wes, he's actually, I want to point this out. Y'all go support him, check him out, get access to all his content because it's great stuff. I'm glad that he's moved to that freemium model, man, because the work that he does is valuable, you know, and it's worth, in my opinion, you know, getting a subscription to be able to unlock all that stuff. He's got some good stuff on the defense too. You know, you can go through and look at some of that stuff. I was checking out some defensive statistics from around the league, some stuff on the Gamecocks, some stuff on Georgia that'll make you shake your head. Like, for instance, Wes, they're, uh, they're three and out percentage, which I would imagine, I didn't look up, you know, the index of exactly what that is. I would imagine that's the percentage of, of total drives that, you know, a defense or an offense that opposes you goes three and out. Georgia is 57%. So 57% of opponent drives are just three in barbecue against Georgia, which is absolutely insane. So anyway, some really good stuff from him. And always, always enjoy hearing from him. Craig says, I feel like I had a lobotomy. <laughs> yeah, but good good stuff from Clark, man. The dude does a great job. So your your takeaway, what, what was your top takeaway? Top takeaway, sorry, I didn't even answer the question. So for me, you know... I, I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff. Some of it was what exactly – he confirmed a lot of what we knew, right? South Carolina's not run a lot of pin and pull. The screen game has been maybe even worse than we thought, um, you know, especially the running back screen game. Or at I, least equally as bad as we thought. <laughs> like equal, Equally or worse. What was the one stat? I think two of 14. Two were successful. Two were successful, just in total. So that was really bad, obviously. Um, I think for me, and this is going to be a strange takeaway because it doesn't really like, I don't know if it's like exact on, on target on something that you can actually latch on to, but just the fact that South Carolina has had some plays, um, in, especially in the run game, that have had small measures of success. Like Clark said, we are not in practice daily, right? So it could be that they're running these plays in practice or there's some reason that they're not. But in the games, we talked about, for instance, the pin and pull stuff, the buck sweep, 
they've had some success on those in very the very few limited times they've run them. So are those successes more of an outlier? Should they actually be running more? Like that's kind of a takeaway for me. And it's, it's more of a question. Like I can't even make a statement on why that is. Um, but I did think it was interesting, you know, because we've, we've gone back and looked at some of the, the games when we rewatch, we look at it and go, why not diversify some things a little bit more? And, and they've tried some different things throughout the year. They've tried, you know, reverses, they've done some perimeter runs, some outside zone, but why has the pin and pull, the buck sweep, why has that gone away, you know, so much this season? Um, I don't know if we have an answer to that, but they have had some limited, you know, successes in that category. No doubt, man. Um, I get the weirdest calls these guys, these days, guys. I have no idea what that call is about. Um, Sorry, I got distracted. But all right, so let, let's talk. Um, there's really, I'll be honest, there. When, the reason we had Clark on today because uh, it's bye week, so there's no no press conference for Beamer today, um, no press conference for coordinators on Wednesday. So, and there's no new opponent to talk about for Saturday. So, I, I figured this is probably as good a time as any to take a little bit more of a big picture approach um uh, to the show and to have somebody on that we haven't heard from since last year he did a great job breaking down the Mike Bobo offense with us last year and I knew he would have some good stuff on what was going on with the offense for South Carolina this year um so uh, we went straight to Clark at the beginning of the show that means we have not gotten into any of the latest news again there's not a ton of stuff going on but we did get the confirmation yesterday um confirmation of a rumor that had sort of been circulating before that Zeb Nolan, um, a a meniscus tear that's being repaired um, today. Probably probably was this morning, actually Um, South Carolina hopeful that he will be available for the Florida game. They went as far as to say what they expect him to be available for the Florida game. Um, That's optimistic, I I think, but uh, you know, we, we talked quite a bit about, uh, Jason Brown on yesterday and how, how maybe, uh, you know, on Monday, I should say, maybe a situation where you might have been wanting to see more of him anyway, just to see, just to find out. Um, but I think now with this, especially, and, and Jason getting the extra practice time, um, it, it really lends itself to to Jason Brown uh, probably playing quite a bit more uh, on Saturday and, and probably getting the start, you know, uh, against Florida. But um, I, I'm curious to see, you know, I, I think to to Clark's point, they need to adjust the, the play calling, the style of the offense for this game, the game plan. They're not going to change the offense. Um, and I do think it's interesting whenever, whenever coaches get asked, Chris, we, we've heard this with Zeb, we've heard it with Luke. Um, when, when the different QBs were getting changed, the question is almost inevitably always, are you going to change the offense for this quarterback? And for the most part, the coaches will be like, no, for the most part, we won't. They're not going to change the offense. The question is, are you going to change the game plan? Are you going to change the play calling? Are you going to change what you do this week? And to me, they owe it to themselves. They owe it to Jason Brown. They owe it to everyone on the team if Jason Brown's going to be the guy to put together something that fits his skill set. We've seen he can run the ball a little bit. We've seen he can make people miss. 
We've seen he can stretch the field. Um, you know, even in, in garbage time, Clark already sort of saw the the, the book. Uh, I mean, the kid can sling the football. Um, the issue is, um, is he going to be accurate, consistently accurate enough uh, for South Carolina to get what they need out of the quarterback position? Yeah, and we, we talked about this yesterday, and we've talked about it in some of the time periods, you know, leading up to the season and during the season where more people were clamoring for Brown to play that, you know, that was the issue, you know, turnovers, um, taking care of the football decision-making. Those are things that had to be factored in. And I think we saw some of that against A&M. We also saw some of the good that he brings to this team, which is uh, he's, a, he's a bigger kid who has athleticism. He navigates pretty well in the pocket. He kind of has a knack for being able to escape, to make some plays, to make some off-rhythm plays, which for an offense that's really struggling, Wes, that's what you need. You need the ability to create some off-rhythm plays and to, and to convert them. You need to be able to push the ball downfield. He's certainly willing to do that, right, to take some shots down the field, sometimes, you know, maybe to the offense's detriment. Um, but you have to be able to take some of those chances. So decision-making, I think, will be the biggest thing um, if he ends up getting more run, whether it's against Florida or just the remainder of the season, that'll obviously be a huge thing. But he does have, you know, some intriguing physical tools. As Clark pointed out, I think they ran, you know, their most popular pass concept, kind of their go-to. They ran it seven times and, and had some decent success with it against A&M. Now it was late in the game. Game was out of hand. But probably, Wes, keeping things simple, you know, at this stage, regardless of who's at quarterback, right? Um, is probably a good idea. Maybe Jason Brown can create some of those off-rhythm plays. Um, you know, maybe he can run the ball some for South Carolina. Maybe they got a they maybe they pass a little bit more on those early downs, those first downs. You know, to help set up the run a little bit more. It'll be interesting. You you can't completely overhaul the offense at this point. I know nobody wants to hear that, but you can't. You can't start over. This isn't preseason. You're not installing a new playbook. But changing the approach is the best that you can hope for at this point. Four games left. It is what it is. First eight games, those happen, right? You can't you can't go back and change that. But is there something that can be done to spark things going forward to make this, you know, more of a serviceable uh, unit, which is what they're going to need if they're going to spring an upset or two, you know, and, and make it to a bowl. And, uh, you know, man, I, I think to an extent uh, – may- Maybe you benefit a little bit from uh, the fact that your opponent's not really going to have much film at all on, on what Jason Brown can do. I, 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 that that may be a small factor in this, but um, it, it can't hurt. You know, this is an interesting take here from Lance on YouTube, and y'all, we're going to get out of here in a second. But I, I I'm I'm kind of with you, Lance. Like I feel like. Uh, and and for those who aren't on the video version of the show, which by the way, it's every uh, every time we have a show, it's on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Apparently, there was an issue with the Facebook tweet, uh, Facebook feed yesterday. Uh, so apologize for that. If you ever see that it's not on whatever feed you are looking for, always go to YouTube. That's sort of the default one. It will always be on YouTube. YouTube.com/slash Gamecock Central. But for those who are listening on the audio version. Lance says, I can live with the turnovers, just make it exciting. Um, Coaches are paid to win games, not to provide excitement. But, but, you know, right now, based on what we saw this past week, I I don't know, man. There's something to be said for 
for creating a little bit of excitement level in the stadium, right? Three out of these last four games are at home, creating some excitement on on the sideline. Um, I I dare say, I think it's a pretty safe bet. Are you going to have more interceptable passes? Uh, which is a concept I didn't had never really thought about, but that is charted on SEC StatCat. Would JB pro- probably so? Are you going to have some more exciting plays though, where he where the crowd sort of holds their breath for a second because he extends a play and and lets it fly? Absolutely. So from a excitement level, from maybe even a fan base level, as far as how many people are at Williams Bryce Stadium, there there are some advantages. To having Jason Brown start, uh, that's not official that he is. I'm going to be shocked if he doesn't start against Florida. Um, you know, there, there's some other advantages to that, man. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no doubt that um, he's going to be an exciting option if that comes to fruition. I think, Wes, one of, one of the reasons is, I mean, you think back to any time a quarterback switch is made in a game. When the new when the new guy comes off the bench, almost always there's an ovation. So there's going to be this natural, you know, thing. There's going to be a natural thing there. Secondly, a lot of the fan base has been clamoring for Jason Brown. You know, sometimes, in my opinion, it, it maybe for some reasons that I wouldn't always agree with. For, for example, if you're saying, "Well, I watched the spring game and he's the best quarterback," I, I can't get there, right? Because there's so many different factors. But I would agree that he is probably the right now with with what's going on with what they've got the most exciting guy he is going to create some exciting plays he does have again the ability to make those off platform off rhythm throws he can sling it and so it could be interesting and it could be exciting and maybe that can create some some offense for them which they're no doubt like i said earlier gonna have to do travis coming in as the voice of reason he says guys we're trying to win that's exciting watching turnovers adds the frustration uh, they tend to come at the worst times. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's it's kind of one of those things, y'all, where it's easy to say you want excitement um, until you do see that interception in the whole stadium. You just hear – y'all know that noise you hear when, like, the whole stadium just sort of, like, either sits down or makes a noise or, like, hits, you know, hits what's in front of them. Like, th- there's this audible noise whenever – when somebody throws an interception in a stadium. So, it, it is fun to talk about on Tuesday on the bye week on on YouTube, but – that that is a, just like everybody wants you to go for it on fourth down and stop kicking long field goals until you start going for it on fourth downs and not getting them, and then you turn on the coach for for making those decisions. So I don't know. And Brian says I'd rather lose in a shootout, but that's not what we're talking about here. Of course, you'd rather score more points. Would you rather Would you rather have a drive where you just go three and out, or would you rather have a drive where you complete? four big plays but then have an interception at the end of the drive and don't score anyway like it's um may, maybe the same result um I don't know by the way there was a question it got answered in the chat as well but for those who were still wondering there's been a lot of discussion and maybe some confusion about what uh, how, how exactly does eligibility work right now Jason Brown is currently listed as a senior but he does have one more year of eligibility left after this season. So um, I saw some of the answers where they asked two years. It's two years, but including the one that we're all in right now, one more year after this year. Chris, you want to tell everybody about Dead Soxy? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Dead Soxy here. You need to go there, and you need to check out 
their extensive catalog of men's and women's socks, all different kinds, all different colors, whether it's the college line that you see up there if you're on the YouTube stream with the spur socks, no-shows, athletics, the boardroom line of dress socks, anything you want, you can find at deadsoxy.com. That's D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com. Use the promo code COCKY and get 25% off your total order at deadsoxy.com. Yeah, appreciate all of our uh, supporters and sponsors, Clint Hammond of the Mortgage Network, of course, Dead Soxy, and of course, Primal Gourmet. Have you have you picked up your your weekly order yet, Chris? Oh man, I, I tweeted something earlier. So to my delight, which I'm delighted every time I get the the Primal Gourmet weekly meal pack. Yeah, what what are we working with, man? So the highlight this week, and there are a bunch of them, but for me, Wes, I immediately and I dug in today: buffalo chicken thighs with ranch. And all the their ranches. Yes. Now, now the first, the one from a couple weeks ago, that was like a some kind of like smoked ranch or something. You know, it was a little bit different. Buffalo ranch, I think it was. This is just straight ranch, and it is absolutely on point. Oh, wish I had more of it. I'm here for it, man. I got, I got to go pick mine up. Uh, all right, y'all. Appreciate the time. Um, we'll let you know what the plan is moving forward. Uh, show may not be every single day this week. We'll see. Um, depending on some guests, though, if I if I can lock in some great guests, then we may just go on and, and do every day this week. Um, if not, uh, I, I don't know exactly what we'll do, but we'll figure it out. We'll let you know. Check out Twitter. Um, <laughs> Travis says, here we go with the ranch talk. Travis, I can't I, – I love you, man. I can't get with you on the, the ranch hate, man. I, I just can't do it. But, uh, yeah, if, if you, by the way, if you subscribe to our YouTube page, that's free to do, uh, youtube.com slash Gamecock Central. You will get an alert uh, whenever we go live. Uh, so if you subscribe and then hit the little bell on there, um, you'll get an alert when we go live. That way you'll always know when the show is live. Uh, appreciate the support, as always. Appreciate you joining us. For Chris, I'm Wes. We'll talk to you soon. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on3 and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Fanduel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. 
Stop.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.